On May 20th, 2000, John Piper delivered a sermon to the largest crowd he'd ever preached to at that point in his ministry. Somewhere between 30 to 40,000 young people who had gathered together for the One Day Conference in Memphis, Tennessee. Just a few years later, this sermon was expanded into a book, a book that has sold over a million copies since it was first published in 2003, and that's changed the trajectory of countless Christian lives. That book was Don't Waste Your Life. Today, I'm sitting down with John to hear his thoughts on that sermon and the book that followed. He shares what he was thinking as he walked onto that stage over two decades ago, the impact that sermon had on his ministry in the years that followed, and why he's still gripped by a story his dad told him when he was a little boy, a story that had a profound impact on his understanding of a life well lived. John Piper is the founder and lead teacher of DesiringGod.org and chancellor of Bethlehem College and Seminary. He served for 33 years as a pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church and is the author of more than 50 books, including Don't Waste Your Life. Let's get started. Well, John, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway Podcast. Right. It seems like yesterday, but it's been a while. It is. So on May 20th, year 2000, you delivered a sermon, a sermon that would... I think it's fair to say changed the lives of many people. Many would testify to the impact that that message had on them, both those who were there standing in the rain listening to you preach, but also those who encountered the sermon, uh, whether the audio or in written form in the years to come after that. And so today we're going to explore a little bit of the backstory of that sermon and, and the impact that that had on not only the lives of many other people, but even your own life and ministry but I wonder if before we get to that, if you could share a little bit about the story of Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards and how their story impacted the sermon that you preached that day. It was providential that those two women uh, died, and I'll mention how in a minute, just weeks before this message and thus provided the backdrop for an illustration I was going to use about um, wasting your life. So Laura Edwards was a medical doctor in her early 80s, or maybe maybe just pushing 80, and Ruby Eliason was single all her life and a nurse. They had worked together for decades off and on with the Baptist General Conference in West Africa, Cameroon in particular. And uh, now Laura was a widow. And weeks before I spoke there in Tennessee, they were ministering together in Cameroon to the poorest of the poor who didn't have access to good medical care. And they were driving along a road that I had driven on myself back in 1985, when I was visiting missionaries there, and I remembered how bumpy and, and uh, dangerous it was, and their brakes failed, and they flew off a cliff, and both of them died instantly. Huh. So that was the event, and uh, it had made the news, and I was moved. I knew Laura personally and didn't know Ruby personally. And the way it turned up in the message was that I asked the young people— all these folks that were spread out on the field there in Shelby Farms, was that a tragedy? Hmm. And I said, no, 
that was not a tragedy. What could you ask for 80 years, 160 years of biblical faithfulness devoted to the poorest of the poor in the name of Jesus, and you get to die without dementia? <laughs> I mean, this is not tragedy. This is a full, glorious, God-honoring life, and then heaven. So, hmm. no, well, that was not a tragedy. And then, of course, you, you know what I did next, because it was the one thing everybody remembers. <laughs> you may want to ask about this, but I'll stop there. You just ask about them. And uh, Yeah. We'll get to we'll get to the next step because um, it is the thing that people so often talk about and remember and comment on. Uh, but before we get there, paint a picture of that day. Who were you preaching to? What was the context for those who have never seen that sermon, don't know this story, and and what were you feeling as you walked up behind that pulpit? Yeah, it wasn't much of a pulpit, but it was in Tennessee a huge open rolling hills field called Shelby Farms. It was an event called One Day, and it was sponsored by Passion, Louis Giglio's dream. And uh, and it was about, I mean, I've heard anything from 30 to 40,000 18 to 25-year-olds sitting out there on the grass. So it's the biggest wow. group I'd ever talked to at that time. And you mentioned rain earlier. It had stopped raining when I stood up to speak, but it, it had been threatening most of the day, and some had to speak to people standing in the rain, but I was spared that trial. My trial, <laughs> which, I mean, you said, what are you thinking as you get up there? Well, the spiritual side of me was saying, oh, God, <laughs> please help me do this. This is, this is a challenge, because students, they're milling all over the place, like a hundred people walking around and <laughs> and 30,000 people sitting on the grass. And you just, it, will anybody pay attention? And uh, the wind was blowing. And so I'm afraid my notes were going to blow away. I don't know if you've ever seen the video, but I never moved my left hand from off my notes. Now, John Piper not moving his left hand <laughs> from off his That's notes crazy. is almost inconceivable, which was quite the miracle because... I did it, although it was a gift from God, because the other speakers dealt with a failed lavalier, and they had to hold a mic in one hand. And what if I had had to hold a mic in one hand and my <laughs> notes with the other hand? That would have been impossible. So I was very fortunate that they had a boom mic for me. And uh, so I, I did, you know, my APTAT that I walk through as I approach any challenging moment in my life. A, I admit, Lord, I can't do anything without you. P, I pray for your help. T, I trust your promise. A, I act. And T, I thank you when I'm done. I walked through Aptat, and I went to the pulpit and and uh, opened my mouth, and, and God gave me words. We were talking about this this morning over, over at Desiring God and the ripple effects that maybe we'll talk about a little here, but what we marveled at is— that as I look back, and I wrote this in my journal the next day, I wrote to a friend and said, I don't know what God's going to do with that because I felt very distracted, which is a lesson for all speakers, right? All lovers of the gospel who open their mouths and always feel inadequate, right? That didn't go well. <laughs> 
and, wow. and the situation was is never right for a full-blown perfect presentation of the gospel and it's just a lesson do it anyway if you got a chance to say anything say it because mm. clearly god is not dependent on our feeling like oh this is uh got to be a situation of perfect mm. it wasn't perfect at all and i uh watch with Marvel what he did in the, in the years to follow. Yeah. A quick question about that APTAT uh, acronym that you mentioned. Is that something that, that you've come up with over the years, or did you get that from somebody else? Because it's, it's such a simple yet profound and, I would imagine, encouraging and reassuring uh, thing to be thinking about whenever you get up to do something difficult. Yes, I did come up with it. The closest I've, I've seen of other people saying the same thing almost the same way was in the book by J.I. Packer called Keep in Step with the Spirit. I stumbled across what Aptat is trying to do is answer the question, how do you walk by the Spirit? Walk mm. by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, bear the fruits of the Spirit, live by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. We're supposed to be a people carried by the Holy Spirit, so that when we're acting, it's not us acting, it's God acting, Galatians 2.20. Well, how in the world do you do that? And Aptad is my answer to how you walk by the Spirit. In, in his chapter on walking by the Spirit, he's got steps. He doesn't number them, and he doesn't put a, a, an acrostic on it, but it's virtually the same. Mm. I guess that's the difference between a, a Baptist and an Anglican. <laughs> uh, <w> <laughs> Although... John Stott was a great numberer of points. Okay. <laughs> and he was the same, the same Anglican ilk. That's right. So in, in the opening prayer to that message, and I would encourage anyone listening to go and, and, and watch that message or listen to that whole message, uh, but in the opening prayer that you say, before you even start preaching, you acknowledge that, quote, it's a frightening thing to call a generation to die. And I think that really set the tone for the message as a whole. And I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit. What did you mean when you said that it was a frightening thing to call a generation to die? I had two things in mind, I think. At least I do right now. And as I listened, I think I heard them both. It's hard to reconstruct exactly everything you were thinking. But number one is the Bible through and through portrays a life in God and a life in Christ as a life that begins with death. Whoever would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So taking up your cross means dying, for he who would save his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will save it. Uh, Psalm 63, uh, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Acts 20, 24, I count my life, I do not count my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I might finish my course and the ministry God has given me to bear witness to the gospel of the grace of God. But when Paul held up his life in one hand and his ministry to finishing the course in the other, he just said, my life is of no value except for one thing, doing God's will and finishing the course. So that's the main thing I had in mind. I'm going to call students to be Christian, radically Christian. You, um, you've been brought with the Christ, therefore glorify God in your body. You're not your own. The second thing I had in mind was driving off cliffs in Cameroon. 
Namely, in order to get the Great Commission done, we got to go to hard places, take real risks, and speak the gospel where it might be very costly, including death. So those are the two senses in which I wanted to summon them to die, be, be a real Christian and die to yourself and live to Christ, and, and secondly, be willing to take the risks that might cost you your life. Hmm. Maybe as a, an aside, you know, you're famous for this sermon, for the book that was then sparked from this sermon, and just in general, your ministry has been marked by the call to Christian hedonism, to, to live passionately for the glory of God, and that through that we receive joy, but not through the, the things the world would call us to. Have you, did you ever in your, uh, throughout your life, or even in your younger years in particular perhaps, did you ever toy with the idea of something as radical as going overseas and, and working in a physically risky place like these two women did? Was that something that was ever appealing to you? Yes. What would be most honest to say would be this. For 33 years, I preached at one church, and every one of those 33 years, we had a fall missions conference. And we devoted two weekends to it. I spoke at one of them, guests spoke at another. And my job was to summon people at the end of seven to 10 days of mission focus to give their lives to the cause of cross-cultural missions. And I'd invite them to the front to stake their, their, draw their line in the sand. And I said to the church, and it was true, that Noel and I, every one of those years, got on our face before God and said, are we to mm. respond to this invitation? Are we willing? Is it time? We're calling all these young people and older people to do these radical, crazy things. And ne never did I feel, and of course I could have been kidding myself here, I'm not infallible, but never did I feel like I would be more useful to God at least not yet. I'm 77. There's still time. Uh, you know, Raymond Lull, when, when he was my age, went to Algeria and got himself killed preaching the gospel, yeah. which was a, a nice way to go instead of, you know, in a nursing home. So don't stop praying for me. <laughs> but at those days, in those days, we, we didn't feel like we'd be more useful to the cause of the gospel by doing it ourselves rather than mobilizing people to do it. Now, the little teeny representation of my commitment was to live where I live. I mean, I'm in the house where I've been for 43 years. Most people think this is a crazy place to live, right? You don't live in Phillips neighborhood if you've got the resources to live elsewhere, which we do. And I look out my window here and we didn't have a TV growing up, you know, and people say, well, how do your boys, how do your boys grow up without a TV? I said, look, all they have to do is go outside to see the news. Mm. You don't need a TV to see what's wrong with the world and learn how to minister to the world. You can just go out and look at it here. So mm. I've never, I mean, Noel and I've never, we raised five kids here. We never re really felt endangered, but other people think, <laughs> other, people, <laughs> other people think it is. It's really not. Huh. So you, you titled that sermon, that you delivered about 23 years ago, a boasting only in the cross. But that sermon has another title, probably a more well-known title that people 
use probably more often to refer to that sermon. I wonder if you can tell us what that other title is, and then I have some more questions. Well, the illustration that is remembered is the seashells illustration, so I suppose it would be the the seashells. I mean, if you said Piper seashell sermon, the people who know the sermon would know what you're talking about. So that's the negative counterpart to the Ruby Elias and Laura Edwards death. And I I had run across this article in Reader's Digest, and I laughed because those students didn't read Reader's Digest. That's an old person's <laughs> that's an old person's magazine. And in it it told the story of a young couple that is in their early fifties who took early retirement, moved to Punta Gorda, Florida, bought a 30-foot trawler, paid, played uh, kitten ball, and collected shells. And when I read that, I thought, okay, that's what I want to talk about at Shelby Farms. I want these students not to live their lives toward that end. And I held up that and said, no, that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. Imagine yourself taking the last 30 years of your life, 30 years of your life from 52 to 82, dying, meeting Jesus and saying, uh, here's my shell collection. Hmm. That hmm. everybody remembered. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody well, remembers think... what text I was preaching on. <laughs> I think it makes sense because it, it was such a, it's such a powerful illustration because it really does you call out in a serious way in a you literally say it's a waste of a life exactly what our culture would hold up as sort of the good life of of the american dream this is what this is what most of our working lives is meant to result in and and you pointed at that but i want to ask the broader question what do you make of the attention that has been, even if you understand it to some extent, what do you make of the way that people have so focused in on that one illustration? Uh, do you appreciate that? Or did it change the way that you understood? Or has it impacted how you understand your preaching and the impact of, of sermons on us? Well, that's an interesting way to pose the question. So a couple of things come to mind. Uh, let me mention the one about preaching and, and then what I think of people making so much of that illustration. I think it's tragic in preaching when pastors hear this story, say, oh, it's stories that count. It's stories that count. So they just leave exposition and the wrestling with biblical texts aside and tell as many stories as they can, because look, Piper, that's what they remember. I think that's Mm. a tragic misunderstanding of what went on there, because I think God anointed that day because it was mainly an effort to help students understand Galatians 6.14, where I don't boast in anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus by which the world was crucified to me and me to the world. Now, the fact that people don't remember that's what I was preaching on doesn't mean it didn't have a massive empowering effect for everything surrounding the exposition. So that's Mm. my response to preaching, is don't draw the wrong conclusion from the fact that they remembered a story as though remembering the story didn't mean the exposition had an effect. It Mm. did. I mean, Joss Bice would not say, I don't think, today, that God saved him that day because of that story. 
God mm. saved him that day because God showed up in the Word of God. Mm. So yeah. that's the first thing. The other thing with regard to what I think of that point being remembered, that story being remembered, I'm happy that it is. I think that story has done much good. I think capturing the wasted life with presenting Jesus with your hobby of seashells is very powerful. And I'm glad it was remembered, and I think it is to this day serving the cause of Christ to warn people, you get one life, you get one pass at this vapor's breath. You're going to collect seashells and present them to judge of the universe, or you're going to do something that magnifies his worth over the worth of your leisure. So some have taken the that anecdote, that story, and they've been a little bit maybe critical of what you were saying there. And they've, they've kind of taken it as implying that you don't think there's any place in the Christian life for leisure or for rest or for uh, relaxation, for fun hobbies. And that like the, the Piper mindset when it comes to the Christian life is go, 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 go. Spend every second of your life working as hard as you can for the Lord, and then die. And that, that's the only way to live a meaningful, valuable Christian life. Is that a fair criticism of what you're saying? Are there ways in which you would say this point that you were trying to make has been misunderstood at times? No, it's not fair, but I don't care very much that it's not fair, because, frankly, I would rather be misunderstood by encouraging too much devotion to the Lord than encouraging too much play. Hmm. Um, I know I'm misunderstood. I know I'm conceived that way, and I'm, o- I'm okay with that. I, frankly, I think if you put away all your preconceptions, that you would say Jesus talked that way as well. Not a hmm. lot of play in Jesus' life, right? No jokes in Jesus' yeah. life. Not a lot of leisure. Some, not a lot. Uh, so I'm okay with that. Now, the reason I say it's not fair is because— I play. (laughs) (laughs) Right? After this video, I mean, this interview right now is over. They give me what's called comp time. (laughs) (laughs) I I work full-time for Desiring God, and those guys, they run my life. And they make sure there's these things called comp time. Well, comp time is because I worked last night until 9 o'clock off-site, right? So Mm. from 6 to 9 was work, and it's not supposed to be, so they give me the comp time. Well, when you and I hang up here, I'm going to go sit downstairs in my chair with my wife and read whatever I feel like reading. Or I might (laughs) go outside and pull up some dandelions because I hate dandelions. So it's just not true. It's not true. And those who are close to me know it's not true. However, when I go public and preach, like right now, that's where I'm leaning. And the reason is because the whole world plays. The world Mm -hmm. lives to play. They're telling all of our young people, work your tail off for 40 years and then play for 20 years. I think that's wicked. So I'm going to say that. And if if people want to twist that and say, oh, there's no place for leisure. You can't go fishing because Piper said you shouldn't go fishing. And you can't golf because Piper says you shouldn't golf. Well, that's just plain not true. And if they Mm -hmm. they cared about the truth, they wouldn't, wouldn't say that. If they want to say... Piper emphasizes much more 
being ready to die for Jesus than being ready to play for Jesus, they're absolutely right. And that's just the, I just didn't, I think that's the emphasis the world needs to hear because the world is going 120 miles an hour in the other direction. Yeah, that's a really helpful nuance that you're kind of responding to the dominant ethos surrounding us in our culture. Uh, but that doesn't mean you don't think there is a place for rest in the Christian life, for leisure in the Christian life. Uh, but that maybe isn't the main thing that we need to hear most of the time as Christians. Yeah. And just one other thing. I mean, don't get me going on work and leisure because, you know, I did ask Pastor John recently on will we, will we work in the age to come? Because it's an eternal rest, right? <laughs> and I said, if it's an eternal rest in the sense of lying in bed, that's a bad future. Believe me. And yeah. everybody thinks it is. Nobody wants to lie in a bed or in an easy chair for a million ages of years. Mm-hmm. We will work. What will be removed is futility of work, pain of work, emptiness of work, meaninglessness of work. All that goes mm-hmm. away and all that's left is creativity and delight and joy and productivity mm-hmm. We're made to work. I mean, we're made to make, to create, to do things. The only thing the fall did was mess that up with futility and emptiness and meaninglessness. So I have no problem emphasizing live flat out to make much of Jesus in every way you can. Mm. So your colleague and friend, David Mathis, worked with you for many, many years at Desiring God and uh, been at the same church together over the years. Uh, he said that sermon, quote, may be the single most significant event in terms of exposing a wider audience to John Piper. So I wonder if you could summarize for us, how did uh, that sermon on that day change or impact your ministry in the years that followed? I don't recall a causal connection between that message and any ministry changes in me. Now, David knows more than I do, and he sees things better than I do, and his memory is way better than my memory. (laughs) But here's what I do remember, and I went back in my journal last night to confirm it. I wrote in my journal within two days of that event mainly my fear and the danger of the pride and the notoriety and the celebrity that could come from speaking to 30,000 people. Mm -hmm. That's what I felt mainly. I mean, there was a lot of thankfulness that God just got me through it. And there was hope that there would be ripple effect for the sake of the nations. But mainly, emotionally, I was trembling. And, uh, I'm thankful for that. I think to write books and to speak to large crowds is very dangerous spiritually. You can have an inflated notion of your significance. You can start to put your eggs of contentment in the basket of fame, and those are mortal dangers Jesus had no patience whatsoever with people who loved the praise of man. And so that was huge. I felt that. I confirmed it in my journal last night, that coming off of the privilege that I felt it was, and and it lasted, you know, for 20 years. Like Louis 
Louis gave me the gift of speaking to passion for 20 years. Imagine yeah, it. Wow. I got to speak to that kind of crowd every New Year's for 20 years. Well, that's huge. If, if I were to say, you know, putting Piper's name before generations who would maybe buy my books, that's, it wasn't just one day. It was Louis hmm. giving me the privilege of speaking at Passion for so many years. And so year by year, I come away from those events trembling with, Lord, don't let me be a squanderer of this gift. Don't let me turn it, turn the gift into a means of ruin through pride. So that was one. Here's one other thing I remember the effect of that day had on me. I was 57. And for the first time, I don't remember feeling this before, standing in front of 30,000 18 to 25 year olds, I felt like I'm their father. I'm old enough to be their father, way old enough. Mm. And I had not felt that in front of any big group before. And I said, I said that to them, I think. And that entered into my life as a whole new self-consciousness. John Piper is now a father in the evangelical world. You, you, don't, you don't come to that point easily because you feel like, I'm just young. <laughs> I'm still young, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm just a young upstart pastor trying to do his job and got a privilege to write a book. And I'm just one of the guys. And, and suddenly you're looking out on 30,000 people and saying, I can't, I'm old enough to be the father of every one of these people out here. Hmm. So my mindset, I would say, grew up a little bit, matured, took, felt a, a greater weight of responsibility because wow. I think older evangelical leaders should feel that way. I think we should feel fatherly toward the generation coming. Hmm. So, so those are some, some of the, the things that I remember flowing out of that day. Yeah. So... Let's skip ahead a few years then. In 2003, you published a book with Crossway, inspired at least in part by that sermon called Don't Waste Your Life. I wonder if you could walk us through briefly, kind of how did that come about? Was that your idea? Was that Crossway's idea? Was that a joint project that originated in, on both sides? Now, that particular question, I don't know the answer to. Who, who had the idea first? I wish I did. I just, I'm... I'm deeply, deeply thankful for the partnership I have with Crossway. Whoever initiates an idea, it generally grows up into a, from a seed to a flower, and that's a wonderful thing. Hmm. But um, if, if I put that question aside of, of who uh, sowed the seed, um, here, here are the pieces that fled, flowed into the book. One, Louis Giglio's 268 generation came from Isaiah 26.8. That verse says, your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. And Louis came to me in 1997, having read my book on missions, and he said, I don't know anybody else besides you saying that the fame of God is reflected in your desire for God capturing those two things, a big, majestic, mm. God is famous, Jesus is famous, and we show that worth and value by desiring him. I want you to come say that at Passion, and let me say it for 20 years. So that was huge. I dedicated the book to him. That's why um, I mention him here, because that was a privilege that I still to this day shake my head at. Secondly, my dad's illustration 
never let me go from a, from when I was a little boy. And I heard my dad in sermons say, as an evangelist, trying to win people to Christ, uh, over and over again, he used this illustration. He was preaching. An old man in his, I don't know, 70s or 80s, walks to the front. People have been praying for him for years. He confesses Christ. He gets saved. He puts his face in his hands on the front pew as my dad is dealing with him. And he just says over and over, I wasted it. I wasted it. I wasted it. Meaning he's old and he just got saved and he's got nothing to give anymore presumably. <laughs> and and I just, I, I remember as a little boy thinking, I don't want that to happen. I don't mm. want that to happen to me. And then there's this, I mean, you can't, we, our listeners, they can't see this, but you can see it. This, this is the plaque that hung on my kitchen in my home from age six to 18. And it says only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Well, when a when a boy sees this plaque every day for 12 years, it's going to have an impact, right? Hmm. So that was a piece. My, my home, you got one life, Johnny. You got one life. If you do what Christ says, it'll count. If you go your own way, it won't count. And so that fed in. That fed in through hmm. the sermon to the book. And, and then as I began to ponder, what would a book like that look like? I remember my college days when existentialism was just so red hot, right? John Paul Sartre <laughs> and the theater of the absurd and and everybody was cool in with existentialism and and as I've lived, I've seen it go from existentialism to postmodernism to uh, expressive individualism and as I look back, you know, over 60 years I see it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. Either there's an objective reality outside of you that defines who you are, God and his word, or you make it up. <laughs> you just make it up and decide what your essence is. That's where transgenderism comes from. That's where homosexual so-called marriage comes from. That's where all this expressive individualism comes from because there's no objective reality. And I thought, that's a good way to waste your life. I mean, waiting for Godot was one of the dramas of the absurd. Two men sitting in a garbage can. And the whole drama is them talking to each other, waiting for Godot, which is for God. Yeah. He never comes. Yeah. It ends. I mean, it's, it's totally absurd. And that's the picture of the generation of the existentialists. They were waiting and waiting and waiting. For, there's no, there is no external reality. You better just make it up. As you go along, and I wanted to write a book. I said, "No, absolutely not. That's not mm. what unwasted life comes from." So there are a whole mm. bunch of streams flowing toward the book. Whoever sowed the decisive seed, Crossway or mm. or me, I'm thankful that Crossway was willing to do it in 2003. Yeah, and it's such a powerful message, and as you said, a, a countercultural message today, maybe more so than it even was when it was first published. But it's remarkable to, to note the way the book was received. So it was published in the beginning of 2003. And by the end of that year, so less than 12 months later, the book had sold over 100,000 copies, which is just, it's an amazing number for such a short amount of time. And, and then the book kept selling year after year after year to where we are today, where the book is now sold over a million copies uh, around the world. So were you surprised by the response? Were you anticipating anything like that for this book? Well, frankly, 
I didn't know any of those numbers until the day before yesterday. <laughs> when, I, when I read your email, I thought, really? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I, huh. I, to, the, to this day, I said to the guys this morning when I was talking about what we we're going to be doing this afternoon, I said, you know, I don't know how any of my books is doing. I got a second coming book with you guys, and I've got a Providence book with you guys, and you got what is saving faith. I have no idea how those books are selling. None. I mean, I really do have the sense that you cast your bread upon the water, and you move on. My whole mindset is: I've written the book, now I got another one to write. So you yeah, guys can have right. it, do with it what you want. But I've written it. That's my job, right? I write books. You sell books. I'm off to new. I'm off to do a new thing, so I'm I'm just not given to trying to follow up the past success or failure. <laughs> there are failures. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I know so, that. so then, so so given that you don't you don't pay attention, you haven't historically paid attention. When you hear those stats now, a hundred thousand copies within the first year, and and a million now after two decades, d- does that surprise you? Are you Yes. What's your response to that? It does surprise me. That's a lot of books. I, I, what moves me is not numbers, because for all I know, those numbers largely represent parents desperately trying to get their kids to read something significant, and they never read it. So uh, I, I don't know what those numbers mean. What moves me is stories, all right? Mm. I want to hear of a life encountering God in this book and being turned upside down and moving in a direction that magnifies the worth of Jesus. That's the unwasted book, (laughs) right? Mm. A, a, A book that causes people to make much of the worth of Jesus is not a wasted book. A book that sells a lot of copies, I don't know, yeah, maybe, maybe that's valuable. Maybe it's not. I mean, there are a lot of bad books that sell a lot of copies. So <laughs> I really want to know, what's it doing to people? How is it advancing the cause of Christ? And that's where I I have gotten much encouragement. I mean, getting ready yeah. for this little interview here, I went searching for stories. I do not mind doing that. I don't. I, I, <laughs> I, I want to hear stories of the mighty hand of God in the life of people through Piper books. I love that, which is yeah. why you so, know, a, little, a little princess here. You know, if I go to speak somewhere and uh, they ask me, do you want to talk to people afterwards or would you rather just disappear into the green book? And if I'm not too tired, I say, I'll, ta- I'll talk for 20, 30 minutes. And yeah. the reason I say yes even though I hate it to have to take, you know, they take pictures and they get signatures, is <laughs> because I hear enough stories and I see enough tears to say, mm-hmm. okay, this is worth it. This is yeah. what I want to hear. This is what I'm living for, is tears of transformation told with honesty and earnestness. That's worth it. Mm. So tell us one of those stories. Uh, what's a story of something that you've heard from somebody uh, who's testifying to the impact that that book had on them? Okay, I'll give you two. And one was surprising because I didn't even know the whole story. So our listeners can't see it, but here's, here's a picture. This is my favorite picture of Don't Waste Your Life. This is uh, Bill Housley, maybe he'll hear this, in the Guam River of Papua New Guinea, March 2003. He's in a canoe 
uh, going into Papua New Guinea, and he's sitting in the front of the canoe reading Don't Waste Your Life. Wow. So March March would have been pretty soon after the right book released. Right after it. Yeah, I didn't even know it was published that early. So he must have gotten it right off the press. And the, the, the illustra- I mean, what he's trying to say with this is, I am in Papua New Guinea in large measure because of Piper's radical call to missions. And he illustrates it just by putting the book up there in front. Now, when I told this story this morning to the guys at DG, Scott went online, typed in Bill House, and he said, he's still there. Wow. He's still wow. there. You could go talk to him in a, in a life of faithfulness and, and, and see about the tribe that they brought the gospel to. So it's that kind of story. And here's, here's the other one. And I got this last night from looking at my journal. Here's a policeman, okay? He's, been, he's in his 40s. He's been a policeman for nine years. And I'll read you what, what he wrote to me. I see 40 years of waste in sin and self-love. God has finally led me out of the desert of my life. God has been speaking to me for about three years now about going into missions. Your book has played a part in fanning little embers into flames. My wife Mm. and I have applied for training with New Tribes Mission. We're going to dump the house and the retirement and start trusting God to take care of us. We are very excited. Thanks for your faithfulness. Now, here, here's, here's the deal. I assumed every one of those 33 years when I was preaching and Missions Week rolled around, I assumed God, for months ahead of time, had been taking people's trees, their lives, in his hand and shaking them like this, shaking back and forth so that their roots are loosened. Not everybody. He wants some people to stay right where they are. I mean, most people to stay right where they are, live for Jesus in your job. But there's a 20, 30, 40 people in this church. God's been shaking their roots. And what I'm supposed mm. to do when I stand up in my pulpit on that last Sunday of Missions Week is pluck that tree right out of the ground. <laughs> and, and, uh, and that's what books and sermons do. God, God is doing the work of, of loosening people. So he referred later in that email to the section in chapter 9 called The Meaning of Your Discontent. And here's what I wrote. Many of you are simply huh. not satisfied with what you're doing. As J. Campbell White said, the output of your lives is not satisfying your deepest spiritual needs we must be careful here because every job has its discouragements. You don't just leave a job because of there's seasons of darkness. We must not interpret that. But if the discontent in your life is deep, recurrent, and lasting, and if the discontent grows in Bible-saturated soil, God may be calling you to a new work. He said that was the paragraph that did it mm. for him. And I read mm. it now because I think some of our listeners are exactly at that point. They're listening to this, and they feel exactly that way. I'm 40 years old, I'm 50 years old, and I'm not satisfied with the spiritual output of my life. I don't want to do this for the next 30 years. What more might be God calling me to do? And I think it's, it's books, it's conversations, and it's sermons that say, come on, dream a dream, that cause people to pluck up their lives and plant them in a new ministry. Hmm. That makes me think of the quote that you've often referenced before, that, that it's your conviction that it's not books that change people, it's not even sermons that change people, it's paragraphs, it's sentences, it's even words that God uses 
uh, and as part of his providential plan to sometimes the smallest thing can just change the whole trajectory of our lives. Right. Yeah, that's what I feel about Bible reading. That's what I feel about reading books. I, I don't know of anybody but geniuses who coming away from reading four chapters of the Bible in the morning have those four chapters present to their mind during the day. Hmm. I mean, there are, I, I, there are probably some kinds of brains that can do that. They have the whole four chapters right there in front of them. For me, sentence. I have to have one sentence. If I don't have a sentence, it's a blur, right? That's just mm, the way my brain yeah. works. I think I'm pretty average in that regard, right? Yeah. That yeah, you come away yeah, from I reading so. four chapters, it's all a blur unless you've latched onto one one sentence. Hmm. Hmm. So my sentence today is um, your sufficiency is from God. Your su- I, mean, just, I just took that out of Second Corinthians. Your sufficiency is from God, period. I can remember that all day, and that feeds yeah. my soul. And as we get ready to talk here, I wonder, am I going to remember what to say? How will this go? I'd say, look, it's not ultimately you, Piper. It's your sufficiency is from God. That's the way I live my life. Hmm. So last couple questions. You mentioned that story of the policeman who, who wrote to you and, and said that he had wasted 40 years of his life. It made me think a little bit of someone who might be listening right now, people who have maybe encountered your book even over the years, who have been that old, if not older, and wonder, man, have I wasted my life? Am I that man in that story that your father told you about who just head in his hands feeling so discouraged, feeling so hopeless that I have wasted so much of my life. There's so little left to give. Uh, am I too late? I wonder what, what would you say to that person? You living uh, a full life of ministry now nearing the end of your ministry. How do you respond to that? It is a great and glorious thing that the gospel is good news for every penitent person and every totally disabled person and every person that has made an absolute mess of their lives. So the first thing I would do if I were sitting beside that old man is I would not try to minimize his pain. Hmm. And I wouldn't try to gloss over the fact he blew it. He totally blew it for 75 years. I wouldn't in any way try to poo-poo, oh, it wasn't so bad or whatever. He wasted it. And I would, I would just sit with him in quiet and let him, let him weep over that. And then I would say maybe two or three things. One, if you let regret paralyze you for the next five years, you will add insult to injury and you will dishonor the Lord. He came and died in order that you might not be paralyzed by regret. That'd be one of the first things I'd say. Hmm. I think the second thing I'd say is, and you have to be very careful with this, because on the one hand, it could sound discouraging, and on the other, it could sound very encouraging. I would say, I am so glad that the story of the thief on the cross is in the Bible, because the thief who died on the cross beside Jesus wasted his entire life, except for maybe one hour, right? One hour he gets on the cross while gasping his last breath to live for Jesus. 
and he does a couple of good works there. He, he bears witness to Jesus. He calls out in humility. He, he has a couple of good works to his regenerate one-hour life. But what a waste. What a waste. And yet Jesus doesn't scold him. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Mm. Like we get, yeah. to turn, we get to do eternity together, fella. <laughs> mm. and, and then the, really the verse that is just over the top, wonderful is Matthew 10 where Jesus sends out the 72 they come back to him and they're just ecstatic that they cast out demons and they heal the sick and they preach the kingdom and Jesus affirms that by saying I saw Satan's fall like lightning in your ministry Mm. Satan was being defeated as you guys open your mouth and preach the gospel and cast out demons and heal the sick. Amen. And then he said, but do not rejoice in this. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's mind boggling that he would say uh. to this old man, for example, look, even if you hadn't wasted your life and you had devoted 70 years to casting out demons and preaching the gospel, you know what Jesus would say to you right now? It's a hundred times more important that you're saved. You're saved, man. To be saved is more important than to have done all those things. Now, I think a lot of pastors, a lot of evangelists, a lot of social workers get so enamored by the usefulness and the thrill of ministry that they stop being amazed that they're saved their sins are forgiven. They've got eternal life in front of them forever. So I would try to reorient that man's mind eventually off of the pain of regret onto the hope of I get paradise with Jesus forever. My name mm. is written in the book. Hmm. Hmm. So one final question for you, and it relates to the very first words of that sermon that you preached uh, now, 23 years ago. I wonder if you can start by reading those words for us. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know a few great things that matter. And then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not people who have mastered many things but who have been mastered by a few great things. So John, as you reflect over your seven decades of life and ministry, what would you say are a few great things, the few great things that have mastered you? Number one, the sheer reality of God. I have circled back to Exodus 3.14 so many times over the last decades when Moses asked God, who shall I say sent me to the people of Israel? God says, tell them I am sent you. I am who I am. That sentence, I am who I am, I think is, is the clearest biblical capture of God absolutely is. Mm. Nobody made God. Nobody brought God into being. Nobody shaped God. If there is ultimate reality, it's God. And that sheer fact of Schaefer, you know, the God who is just 
there. He is the given of reality. He's just there. And universe, the universe is like a peanut that he carries in his pocket. Uh, but his absolute reality is the number one great reality of life. Just coming to terms with the fact I'm not God. God is God. God is absolute reality. God is outside the world. God decides everything. He decides right and wrong, up and down, black and white, beauty and ugly. He's absolute. Nobody influences him. He influences and determines everything. That just staggeringly important. So that's that's number one. Second, therefore, the universe is created and has a purpose. And the purpose is that everything that happens ought to display the greatness, the beauty, the worth of that God through the enjoyment of his people in him. That's, that was the great discovery of my life. You could say it another way, namely that the enjoyment of the glory of God, the God who is, is the apex of his glorification. That's my life, my Christian hedonism. The enjoyment of God above all things is the glorification of God above all things. And that's why he made the world. So you get the magnifying of God and the enjoyment of God in one great act of, of worship. And then the, the third or fourth thing, depending on how, how you number these, <laughs> he, he, this God exists in a Trinitarian reality. He has a son the Word and the Son of God became a God-man in order to suffer and die so that undeserving people might have that enjoyment forever and ever. I mean, that is, that's the center of the gospel, right? Jesus Christ comes into the world. He dies for the sins of his people. He bears their guilt. He carries their punishment. He magnifies God. He rises from the dead. And all who believe in him will have everlasting happiness in his presence forever and ever. That's worth a hundred years of meditation. And then I would add two more things that have mastered me the sheer magnitude of eternity, just how long that is. <laughs> and the reason that's so significant in relation to God is because Ephesians 2, 7 says, in the coming ages, he will show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, it will take infinite, coming ages for God to exhaust the riches of his grace in kindness on us. I really think that's what Ephesians 2, 7 means. We must Amazing. have eternity, eternity, never ending. I mean, this is just mind-boggling for a nine-year-old, a 12-year-old lying on the roof of his house, looking up into the sky, being scared to death of eternity because it's going to be boring. <laughs> And growing up and to realize, no, 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 it's not boring. God is of such an infinite nature that his mercies will be new every morning forever. That's oh, what infinite wow. means. God is inexhaustible in the treasures of the riches of his kindness in grace. And it will take forever and ever and ever for him to show us all there is about himself to make us happy. It will never be boring, ever. 
And then the last thing is to bring it back down on earth is to say life right now is sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As long as there's sin in this world, my joy in God will always be painful. It will always be sorrowful. It will always be sad. They asked me this morning when we were talking over at Desiring God about how I felt about some of the stories that were being told about the, the, the ripple effect of Desiring God. And I said, frankly, I mainly think about the pain and there, there are things in my family I wish were different. I think about my marriage. I wish I wish our better husband. I, 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 I've got a whole list of things where I feel regret, right? Mm. I'm not measuring up to my own standards, let alone God's. And therefore, that I don't ever expect in this life to get beyond that. And yet, when this is over, then it won't be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. It will be only rejoicing. So those are, those are a few of the really big things that have, have held me over the years. Amen. Uh, John, thank you so much for sharing with us about the story of this important message that you preached all those years ago, the book that rose out of that, and, and uh, the way that that vision has shaped your whole ministry and, and career for decades. We appreciate it. Thank you. It's been wonderful to be with you. I love talking about big things. <laughs> That was John Piper on the sermon that eventually turned into the best-selling book, Don't Waste Your Life, which is now available as a new edition from Crossway. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off, or get the ebook or audiobook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.